Thanks so much for all of you we've had the opportunity to meet already and just exchange hellos with though uh, my son Bennett and I, uh, we kind of are out here on a father-son 16th birthday, end of school year, get away from all the girls in our house, trip all wound up together. I actually, I was telling Sung this morning, I, uh, Tab and I had something in common beyond 21 years ago. I was online doing some coursework uh, with the seminary I'm in and I'm scrolling through doing the student-professor interaction and there's Tab's picture which is, which is how I ended up getting in touch with you. I was just looking to borrow a kayak, and we ended up preaching, so here we are uh, today. So I'm, I'm so grateful to be here. But uh, I'm, I'm also, I just don't want to waste time. You know, I'll, I'll be out of your face soon enough, uh, maybe never to see you again, maybe get an invite back, I don't know. But I was just affected. If you're visiting here and you're local, I, I just encountered the church a moment ago as uh, Matthew and Alana were prayed for. And uh, I want to say this very carefully. I'm going to come back to it at the end of the message. But the Lord put some things on my heart this morning while praying out in the backyard of my friends, the Bowmans, uh, who are graciously hosting us. And uh, I, I'm not, we prophesy in part. I'm, I, I am not declaring this one thing that I'll hold and share later is definitely for you. But I do know this, and I know you know this. Uh, Matthew, cancer didn't bring you into this world. And it cannot take you out. Only God and his number of days for you has that kind of power. And uh, I'm just going to say boldly in faith, I trust in sovereignty, but that doesn't mean we hide behind it without asking God for big things. I'm going to hope for a future visit. I'm believing for a future visit, and, and I'm going to be talking to you. And uh, that's, what, that's what I'm praying for this week uh, with faith with absolute faith in the power of God. Well, you are in Zechariah, and we were in Zechariah. Somehow, Tab stumbled upon that, and, and I think the, the prayers just offered up for Matthew and Lana's family uh, just fit right into this. Uh, call it what you want. Your king is coming. God's promises are yes and amen. Sermon from an average preacher from Orlando, whatever works for, for you, I'm not so concerned about that. Uh, if, if it seems at the beginning, though, that, that it's taken some time to, like, where is he going with this? Stay with me. There, there's a reason to set up the history of this that, that has application, uh, surely, for Matthew and Alana, but for every single one of us this morning. And so uh, we were in this book along with some of the other minor prophets for the second half of 2016 as we just preached our way through the minor prophets and just encountered Christ in them and that is that is my expectation this morning so would you pray with me and then we'll we'll just go right into it this this is not a message with a bunch of stuff to go do it's more of a behold kind of message would you pray with me lord thank you for this day god thank you for the unity we have in Christ that got him a couple thousand miles away from here and yet within a matter of minutes can feel at home by your spirit. God, I'm gonna share eternity with people in this room. We're gonna be, we're gonna be citizens of the new Jerusalem. We're gonna share the same street address or nearby or something or we'll be able to get there really quick. God, it won't take a plane. It won't take all the confinements we know now. So thank you for the family of God that's huge and worshiping all over the world as the sun rises today, God. Thank you for that. Lord, as we heard earlier, as we shared, worship, it's not just that singing part or the giving part, the praying part. It's your word being proclaimed and heralded. So God, by your spirit, be alive in our hearts. Would we be able to say 
Lord, through your preached word, that surely you are in this place. You are in this community center. This is a house of God right now. And so speak to your people, encourage your saints, and draw new people who aren't saints yet to become saints. We would pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a little walk through history. Zechariah 9. And I just, a confession, if you will, if you're like, why doesn't he have a Bible up there? Uh, it's in my notes. It's ESV in my notes. I have an NIV, NVI, parallel Spanish-English Bible in my car, and I thought in integrity, I shouldn't carry that up here because I wouldn't be reading it from it, so I didn't want you, like, I, I'm, just like, I'm not even going to bring it, I'm just going to tell you. It's in, it's in my notes right here. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. I love that wallet. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea and she shall be devoured by fire. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So you are in this series, so I'm going to assume some things about the history and backdrop that you already have of Zechariah, but it's around 517 B.C., and Zechariah gets this burden or oracle, Uh, and it's a foretelling, which is what the prophets were often doing, foretelling, sometimes in a ripple effect kind of a way. You know, there was something being foretold that was going to happen soon, which we're going to see, but the ripple effect of prophecy going out into the future. And so both are in this passage as we see it unfold. But, but the, the, the near fulfillment is this foretelling of a coming conquest of the Mediterranean coast and the cities that were there. And about 175 years after Zechariah prophesied this, it all starts to unfold. Well, what was going on? Well, the Greek army at that time is under the command of somebody you've heard of, Alexander the Great. And he was just sweeping in like a torrent, just, just devouring every army in his path, including the armies of King Darius, who for Israel's concern was thought to be unbeatable. But Alexander did. King Darius, the Persians, were holding Israel in captivity at that time. And so Alexander brings his army down the Mediterranean coast, and he gets to this city called Tyre, a city built on an island about a half mile out into the sea. And it was thought to be impenetrable. Did you hear the way it was described in Zechariah? They've built themselves a rampart, and they've heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. In other words, this city, this army has so much money, so much at its disposal. They've built this thing a half mile off the coast, and as far as anybody's concerned, there isn't an army on the earth that's going to take out this city, except God has something to say about that. Now, it wasn't a lack of effort. There were armies that tried to take out Tyre. The Assyrians besieged the city for five years to no avail. The Persians tried relentlessly for 13 years to bring down this city, and it was unscathed because not only was Tyre, and I I think we'll get to a picture in a moment, not only was Tyre a half mile out into the ocean, it had two 150-foot walls all the way around 
with 25 feet of earth in between them. I mean, who knows how much labor this took to build, but, but no one was coming near to this city. It was thought. Now, how is Alexander the Great going to fare any better? Well, it took him seven months. Seven months, and Alexander defeated the city of Tyre. What he did was he's there, and uh, if we have the picture of this, I'm not sure exactly where he was standing by the OLD or the TYRE. I don't know where he was standing, but he's looking out there, and he sees this gap. He's got a half mile to cover, and, and what apparently the other armies had never thought to do was take all of the rubbish and rubble that was at old Tyre, because the, the, they destroyed that when they built the new city, there's all this debris lying there. So what does Alexander do? He decides to go ahead and use all that and start throwing it into the sea. And he builds a land bridge. And because the entire army was behind these two walls, 25 feet, they, they'd actually so built themselves in defensively that they were vulnerable to just get up on the outer wall to attack Alexander. So basically, he's got a free pass. He's building this thing across the land, and then he just brings his army in, and now he's close enough to set the city to fire, which was what God foretold would happen through Zechariah. Now, the, the passage... Um, the passage is powerful, we'll see more of this, but something else God said was that, that this city, it's not only going to get torched, that's never going to get rebuilt. Now there's a modern picture of today, I think we got the second picture, so it, it's difficult to see in this picture, but they filled the land in since then, this is modern day. This is modern-day Tyre, and so this land bridge has since been built out, but on the island out there is this, what is now called an archaeological site. It's the remains of the old city of Tyre. Now, humans would say, well, the reason we haven't rebuilt on it is because it's of archaeological significance. It's of historical significance. Yeah, yeah, whatever. The reason it hasn't been built on is because God prophesied through Zechariah it is never going to get rebuilt again. And so you can literally, in 2017, fly to Turkey and go there and see this place. It's powerful to me. I mean... We don't need history books, which this is all in history books, by the way, especially the Jewish historian Josephus. We don't need history books for our faith, but isn't it so cool when the history books just go ahead and write what God has already said is going to happen. So, so God foretold the destruction of this city and that it would not get rebuilt. Okay, so hold that up. Now, God said some things about other cities, too. Look back in Scripture, Zechariah 9, verse 8. After this happens to Tyre, this is what he says about his house. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. So what is Zechariah getting? He doesn't see this. He's already died before this happens. But he's getting this, this oracle, this burden. He writes it down, and he's getting a picture. They're okay, so Tyre is going to be destroyed. Helpless Jerusalem is not going to get destroyed. There will be a guard set up the house of the Lord. Well, what happened? The Jewish historian Josephus, who I mentioned a moment ago, and I'll slow down a little bit. Just bear with me. Uh, he, he tells us exactly what happens. So, like any army... Alexander needed a supply line, right? He needed food. He needed supplies. So he asked Jerusalem, if you will, he asked the high priest in Jerusalem, can you help me out with some assistance and food? Well, the high priest declined 
because he'd made a pledge to King Darius that if King Darius would let a remnant return to Jerusalem, he wouldn't lock arms with another army. So he kept his word. The high priest kept his word at great risk because surely he knows what's happened everywhere Alexander the Great goes with his army. But he told King Darius, we will not align with another army. And so he said no. Well, you can imagine Alexander the Great isn't used to people saying no to him. You know, that wasn't a common occurrence in his life. And so he basically sends message back, I'm paraphrasing, but he gets message to the high priest, okay, as soon as I'm done with Tyre, I'm coming for you. You're next, Jerusalem. And so that's the message that the high priest gets, that Jerusalem, the little bit that's left of it, is itself going to get annihilated. So now the high priest Jadis is terrified, but God spoke to him and encouraged him and instructed him, just take courage, adorn the city with wreaths, and open the gate to greet Alexander. Now think about that. Imagine waking up and, and you know, I don't, you know, did the high priest have a wife? And she's like, oh, hey, how was your night? Well, you know, and then he has to explain this. So, so I got this letter from Alexander the other day that he's pretty much coming to kill us all. And I go to bed and I get a dream from God. You know what? Open the gates for him. Open them. In fact, decorate. Decorate the city. You know, have them over for lunch kind of a deal. Like, what in the world? That's what he's told to do. Boy, sometimes God asks us to do things that are just a little bit out of our understanding and comprehension, doesn't he? He has a way with that. He's got a way with that. Well, what happened? Josephus records what happened next in the book of Antiquities. When Alexander, while still far off, saw the multitude in white garments, in other words, Jadis did what God told him to do, the priest at their head, clothed in linen, how would you like to have been those priests getting that order? I want you to go out and stand out there to greet them. You know, that army coming. He sees the priest at their head, clothed in linen, and the high priest in a robe of hyacinth blue and gold, wearing on his head the mitre with the golden plate on it, which was inscribed the name of God. Listen to this. Alexander approached alone and prostrated himself before the name and greeted the high priest. In other words, he sees all this, Alexander the Great bows down to the very one to whom he'd sent letter, I'm going to come and annihilate you. How? Why? Why did that happen? Well, that's what Alexander's generals were wondering. They'd never seen that before. What is he doing? They'd never seen that, so they asked. And Alexander explained to them the following. He too had had a dream, just like Jadis had had a dream. And in his dream, he saw the high priest dressed exactly like he saw when he got there. So he had that vision, and then he gets there. He's like, I've seen this before. Yeah, in his dream. And Alexander, I would say, wisely took that as a sign from God. Now, Jerusalem had no army. There was no way to defend itself with an army because they didn't have an army. They didn't need an army. Because they had God, and God is big enough for Alexander the Great, and God, Matthew, is big enough for brain cancer. He's big enough. He's big enough. Now, why? Why all that backdrop? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. He will do exactly what he says he will do. That's what I love about the minor prophets. I, I, I hope some of the imagery and symbolism and 
bizarreness that we can sometimes encounter in the, in the Old Testament prophets doesn't scare you away because they are preserved for us to teach us about the character and nature of God. He's a promise keeper. He's faithful against all human odds. He's never needed human odds, ever. You know, skeptics and Bible critics at times will talk about Scripture in ways that, ah, you know, it's not a science. Well, it doesn't do this, it doesn't do that. You know, anything that doesn't align with their presuppositions, they just dismiss it. Well, listen, God didn't give us his word to record every single scientific fact or every single historical fact. For that matter, even all the works of Jesus are not preserved in Scripture, right? John 21 says this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. Isn't that amazing? Think, think about what we know Jesus did do, the, the bit that we have. You get what that's saying? You and I have like, I, I don't know, if this whole room were a rope from end to end and that represented the books of what Jesus did, apparently what we've been given in Scripture is just this. It's just, just this little spot on this whole entire line. But it's sufficient for our salvation. And don't worry, we're going to have all of eternity to get the rest of it. To just hear the stories. And people telling us what God was doing in their day, in their generation, in their lives. You know, no historian that I know of questions the truthfulness of the siege of Tyre. You can literally go there. You can visit this place. But long before history verified it, God had foretold it. He foretold it to declare his sovereignty over every earthly king and to encourage Israel that though the nations tremble and the earth gives way, his redemptive purposes will prevail. That's big speak for simply saying what God has said will happen, will happen. What God has said will happen, will happen. And that is why scripture has been preserved for us primarily, first and foremost, for us to know that what God has said will happen in relationship to how is it that sinful men and women can get restored to God, how can that happen? That's why we have Holy Scripture primarily, for God to tell his plan to save a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every race, just like he promised. Zechariah foretold the limits of one of the mightiest of earthly kings or generals. I, I don't know. Maybe some of you historians could name somebody greater than Alexander on the battlefield. But what God is making very clear is uh, everything, everyone has limits in comparison to him. Everything and everyone must bow. But more than that, Zechariah talked about that guy, Alexander, to juxtapose him to the coming of another king, which is ultimately where Zechariah is going. Another king, a messianic king that you've been studying about in this series. Now, before we get to that king, it's amazing how fast time goes by. We are, where are we now? Six, 15 and a half years at least since our nation trembled. Not by Alexander the Great, but by terrorism. And if you're old enough sitting here, then like me, you watch the World Trade Towers tumble like an erector set. 2,606 lost their lives in the World Trade Center. Another 265 in the four airplanes involved that day. And another 125 at the Pentagon. I have a quadriplegic cousin named Pete as a direct result of 9-11. And 
Last year in my city, Orlando, we had what has now become synonymously known as Pulse in our city, which was since 9-11 the largest terrorist attack in our country. We tremble. Will we tremble again? Probably. I don't know when. I don't know where. I don't know how. But I do know this on the authority and faithfulness of Scripture. A king above all kings is coming again. We sang about that king. And on that day, he will right every wrong, every darkness, every terrorism, every racism, every abortion, every cancer, every bomb, every human trafficking, every disease, every famine, hunger, corrupt politicians, you name it, including my remaining sin. He will conquer it all and it will cease. How? Well, the very same reason that the whole letter or burden of Zechariah exists. It will happen because God is a promise keeper. And here's the pastoral burden I have for you and myself this morning. The fulfillment of promises past can and ought to assure us of the fulfillment of promises future. In God, it is yes and amen. And here is the promise of Zechariah. Our king, we're living, now we got to fast forward, right? We're 2017. We're on the other side of what Zechariah foretold. Our king has come, amen, and our king is coming again. This is the promise of God, and that, that should produce something in our hearts. Zechariah 9 verse 9 gives us exactly what it should produce. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Why should this little, poor, defeated city uh, shout and rejoice? Why? Because behold, your king is coming to you. Anytime you see the word behold in your Bible, it it is like a, a flashing sign to get our attention. Pay attention to this especially. Behold, your king is coming to you. Think of it with me. Meditate on this. Matthew 21. Zechariah foretold this. And then we get the gospel of Matthew. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Who said that? Zechariah. Actually, God. Zechariah was just faithful to write it down. He's coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. I don't know how this works in the heavenlies because I haven't been there yet as far as I know. Uh, But Zechariah, I I don't know, but I wonder, did, did he get, like, was he allowed to peer over You know, I just passed Qualcomm Stadium on the way here. I could see why they moved. That stadium needs some help, but that's a separate story. Uh, Did they, sorry for you Charger fans. 
Uh, was he like in his seat? And was he getting to watch this unfold? And was he like, oh, that, that's, that's what you had me write down. God, that's what you, there it is. It's happening right now. I said earlier, that this isn't a to-do message. It's really more of a behold message, a prayed into our souls message, a passage that I believe entreats worship. Or if you're here and Jesus Christ isn't yet your king, a passage that invites your glad surrender to call him, call out to him to become your king. But who is this king? Behold, your king is coming. What, what are we to behold? Well, Zechariah helps us out. He tells us what it is we're to behold, and that's how we're going to spend the rest of this time. First, behold your king who is coming to you who is righteous. Verse 9. Righteous and having salvation is he. Righteous. Now, we're not too many months removed from our 2016 presidential election. Depending on one's perspective, it's one to remember or one to forget. I'm not sure. But one of the distressing issues of the campaign, I imagine you felt it here as much as we did in Orlando. One of the distressing issues among several was that didn't it seem this way that neither candidate, when it, when it came down to it, when, when all the primaries were done and it was Trump or Clinton, that, that at the top of the distressing list was the sense that neither one of them is righteous. So whether you're Democrat, Republican, whoever you voted for, like that wasn't something any of the news pundits on any of the stations were declaring. Neither were, no, no one who supported either of them was publicly like, you ought to vote for this one because they're so righteous. I mean, did I miss that news night? Did I miss that anywhere? Like that wasn't what they were saying. I mean, when you boil it all down, it, I'm paraphrasing the whole entire long, long, long season that that was, but it seems like both sides were saying something like this. Listen, we know our candidate isn't very likable. We're not even sure they're always believable, but they're slightly better than your candidate. I mean, that's what the election came down to. We were voting for slightly better, and, and whatever our opinion happened to be on that. And, and, and if, we're, if we're not careful, those could become two people that like seem so distant from us. But guess what? I have something in common. We have something in common with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and every other candidate. We're not righteous either. We're not righteous. None is righteous. No, in case anybody was confused, in case any Pharisees were like, none is righteous. Wait, what about me? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. For the sake of my son who's heard this story a billion times, I'll make it short. But do you know what I was doing on the night of my conversion? I was walking around with an open Bible asking for someone to please show me the way to salvation. No, I wasn't. I was committing burglary. I was in the middle of theft. When God said, stop. You're not going any further. No one's righteous. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. If your salvation story doesn't include burglary right before your conversion, good for you. <laughs> you know, the irony is I was the campus treasurer of our ministry like a year and a half later. It's crazy. <laughs> like they, I told them, I, you know what I, right? You know that, Okay. I never, 
What does somebody like me do? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith for all who believe. For, oh my, I don't know which one of you has the cleanest, purest upbringing. Not only didn't do wrong, but didn't even think to do wrong. I don't know that any of you say that was you, but whoever it is, sorry, I made eye contact with you, and your name is, yeah, you, you, Eric. I had an older brother, Eric. Okay, so Eric is the most righteous guy in the room, okay? Eric, Eric grew up and, and just, you know, Mother Teresa would call him for advice kind of guy. Well, Eric, there's no distinction between you and me, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Think about that. Who do you want to measure yourself up against? Earthly-wise, who? I mean, I really do sincerely hope your upbringing in many ways was, I, I hope a lot of the things I got myself into, you didn't. But before a holy God, that doesn't count. Now, is it Mission Bay? Is that the name of the place you're... I mean, if we all got it, I don't know what the distance is out there or where the tides go, but let, let's just, what, what if we challenge each other to a freestyle swim in Mission Bay a week from tomorrow? I'm just gonna make up a distance because I don't know what it is, you know? Okay, is it five miles to some, what, wherever? Let's, let's go all the way to La Jolla Cove. That's where I plan to be this afternoon, kayaking, Lord willing. Uh, so, okay, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna swim there, you know? Great. Maybe I made it six miles, and you could laugh, like, ha I made it nine. Okay, but what if the distance is 15? In the end, what have you gotten? You're drowning too. <laughs> You're just drowning a little further out, that's all. There's no one righteous. None. There's no distinction. There, there's not, God doesn't give a medal for the one who made it nine miles, but not the one who made it six. Neither get a medal. None are righteous, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Having salvation is he. He's righteous and he brings, our king brings that righteousness as a gift to those who would believe through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation, as, as an offering by his blood, as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. You see, it, it, it's, it's not only that we couldn't swim the distance, it, it's not even that, oh, look, God put a gift halfway out there in Mission Bay. All we gotta do is go swim to it. No, he brings it all the way. He brings it all the way. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Our king is righteous. I already skipped ahead to salvation. But let me just say this. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, do you know when each person breathes their final breath, whenever that moment is, if they're conscious of it, a clarity regarding need will appear perhaps like never before. 
the one thing we truly need will become clear in that moment, and it's salvation. It's the forgiveness of sin with a new heart. There is no greater need of any human heart anywhere, and no earthly king or candidate can give it. Only King Jesus can bring salvation. He hasn't promised to give what every sinful heart wants. He's promised to give what every sinful heart needs, which is salvation. I want a lot of stuff. Are you like me? I mean, if I do make it out there kayaking, I'm just going to confess it ahead of time. I'll be coveting half the houses I see on the cliffs, I'm sure. That isn't what I most need, though. On the last day, those things are going to tumble down the hillside like they were never there. Salvation is what I need. Our king, he's righteous, he brings salvation, he's humble. Humble and mounted on a donkey, verse 9, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Don't you love, I I hope you love scripture. I mean, think Zechariah, I mean, what is he thinking as he's, he's just faithfully writing a, a, I mean, he's got Alexander the Great, well, he doesn't even know him yet, he isn't been born yet. Uh, whatever army exists when Zachariah is alive, I'm pretty sure the general wasn't going around town on a donkey. And he's riding a king on a what? A, a beast of burden? Humble. Mark 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How many how many had to give their life for the king of Tyre to build that place? Throughout history, how many how many have given their lives because of the whims and will of an earthly king? This king he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Personally, in my own life, I don't know of any one verse that helps me more battle self-entitlement than that passage. The sense that I'm owed something, deserve something, I'm an American, what does that even mean? Than that passage. I saw it in the airport, I was confessing to my son, we got here. It's crazy, you know, just how quickly this can all rise up in my heart. So we were at the airport. Uh, we get out of the airport. We're over at the dollar counter to get the rental car that really needs some new brakes. Anyway, it's our turn, and the fire alarm goes off. And we, we've got to go out. I, I say this to my shame. I, I, don't, I don't curse out loud anymore. I can't explain why. That's the best I've got. But in in that moment there, and we all had to go out, and I'm immediately going into this, and I'm going to be at the back of the line, and 50 people are going to be in front of me, and the thing's going to, you know, and I'm creating this whole scenario in a millisecond. Can you do that? I can create doom so quick in my heart and head. And and under my breath, I, 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 by the grace of God, I caught it before, but I was like, what the? And you can imagine the rest from there. I'm not proud of that. But what was that even about? And I confess that to my son. He's just this entitlement. Like, like, I mean, what if there had really been a fire? What if somebody was really in danger? My chief concern in that moment is how quick am I going to get to Brockton Villa? Have you eaten? It's really good. I mean, if you've been there, you understand. 
what? Now, again, by the grace of God, the moment got redeemed, but, but I, I was like, oh, man. Lord, thank you. A king is coming one day, one day, one day. I will perfectly consider others above myself. That day hasn't arrived yet. And as was prayed, even with healing, I don't like the process, but I needed that moment. I needed that moment in the airport to see God's not done with me. He's working to make me like this king, humble, to make me like one who isn't living to be served, but to serve. Our king's rule is peace. What a beautiful word. Zechariah 9, 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What, what is it it seems is missing from so many people's lives? It isn't stuff. It, it, it's Peace. I think when, when people are honest, when they can get away from the noise of life, what is it they're wanting? It's peace. That, that's, that's one of the outcomes of our salvation. I think we got a picture of the mountains. I, I just, I love that. You'll keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Can you imagine that? Perfect peace. Perfect always eternal enduring peace my son and i were on top of iron mountain the other day and you know you, you do you get away from it you just you, you taste it you get you get these foretaste of what our future is going to be our king's rule is peace that's what isaiah prophesied jesus would be the prince of peace think of it after his resurrection he comes in to a locked room where the disciples were, goes right through the door, sees their look of astonishment. So he says, you got anything to eat? Because <laughs> he wanted to assure them he wasn't a ghost. But yeah, he really did just go through that door. You remember what his first words were? These were good words in that moment, I'm sure. Peace be with you. Numerous times after his resurrection, that's what he said. Peace. Peace be with you. Jesus came to give us, if you will, the shalom of God. And fifthly, Finally, our king is a shepherd. I will whistle for them and gather them in. Now, I grew up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, so I get that. I remember that. The farmer behind us who would literally whistle. His name was Mark. He would whistle and the sheep would come at the sound of his voice. He had me whistle once. They didn't come. <laughs> Not a very good whistler, number one, but it wasn't his voice. They came to him. Do you remember when God whistled for you? I'm talking about your conversion. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live in return. You realize that's what we're all marching toward redemptive history? Think about that. 
The church has gathered or did gather earlier today in Asia, in Europe, Latin America. As we got started here, my family back home was headed to lunch after church. All over the world, as the globe is turning and getting in line with the sun, which was right where God left it the night before as we measured night, the church is gathering. We're scattered, but we're all marching toward that city, that day in heaven together. He's drawing them. That whistle goes out all over the world. He's a shepherd, drawing, calling people. In Revelation 19, there's this, we're in the book of Revelation at home right now. John describes this great multitude in heaven singing with such a fervency that it's like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder. And that song is being sung by a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and race to our good shepherd Jesus. Over and over, the book of Revelation, oh, he'll, he'll come back as the Lion of Judah, but he's also a lamb. The shepherd is also a lamb, like us. That song being sung, it's a song of gratitude, it's a song of deliverance. It's beautiful. Grace, I, I can scarcely, perhaps you can scarcely imagine the singing, the crying, the laughing we will do when our faith finally becomes sight. It's my favorite part of Revelation. This, this shepherd, I don't know what this moment's gonna be exactly like, but the shepherd, the lion, the lamb, Jesus, will introduce us to God the Father who will take his hands and wipe every tear from our eyes. He is our shepherd. And I hope that that makes even a passage that's so familiar to us never too familiar. And I'm referring to Psalm 23. See, when I see words in Scripture, I love to go to other places of Scripture with the same words to, to, to get it. He's a shepherd according to Zechariah. Well, how did David describe this shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. See, when, 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 when sheep hear the whistle of their shepherd, they don't want anything else. They just go to the shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Remember this as you fly to San Francisco or drive, Matthew. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our shepherd. As a local church, we're in partnership with some churches. And one of the places we have the privilege of serving is in Bolivia. And uh, I have dear friends in Bolivia. And that's kind of stirred up a burden for me to get back to learning Spanish. Kind of took a 20-year hiatus from that. It's not coming as easy as I remember it 20 years ago. 
But among other ways of just trying to practice, uh, I've, just, I've just been singing some songs in, in Espanol, Spanish, to, to just take it in. And there's one song called Mi, Mi Roca or My Rock, and forgive me if you speak Spanish and can pronounce this better than me. But, but the second stanza of, of this song, Mi Roca, it goes, uh, Cuando no puedo ver su vas, Sé que su gracia es siempre igual. A la tormenta venceré. Mi ancla firme está en él. Mi ancla firme está en él. Or, when I can't see his face, I know that his grace is always equal. In an overwhelming storm, my anchor is firm in you. My anchor is firm in you. Now I said there's really nothing to do and I meant that and thanks for your patience with me. If I didn't serve you, good news, I won't be here next Sunday. (laughs) But listen, some of you are, not only Matthew and Alana and his family, but some of you, you're walking in valleys, metaphorically speaking, this morning. And those valleys haven't necessarily been desired or asked for. Nevertheless, the valley is real and the valley is dark. And I believe the Lord wants to encourage and strengthen you that you have a firm anchor, a mighty, merciful promise keeper in the valley who will do what he's promised to do. And so this morning, I I was praying and this... I'm going to assume you're well taught on these things. We, we prophesy in part, but I, I, I don't want to hold back from sharing what I believe the Lord gave me this morning. And, and I asked Tab if that would be okay, and he was absolutely amening it. So I'm just going to share them and then leave any pastoral work to Tab and the elders here. Uh, you're very welcome, my friend. Uh, but I don't think this is only Matthew, and I'm not... I'm not declaring who this is for, but I believe there is a valley of sickness and the Lord wants to encourage you that that though this sickness has raged, Alexander the Great had a boundary determined by God. He could go no further than that boundary and I believe the Lord wants to encourage you that with this sickness, it is the same. There is a boundary line to this sickness. Now, fear wants to come in and overwhelm you that this darkness is only going to get darker, but I believe God has set a boundary on this sickness and that healing is coming. And when you're wondering why the valley, it's because the valley has opened your eyes to who God is in ways that you never would have gotten without the valley. However, what has seemed like loss in the valley of affliction is going to end up as your gain. I believe God has a boundary and we're to pray for you for healing. There's also a valley of trust, and I, I, I just, the impression I had in prayer this morning is there's maybe two people here. There's a valley of trust, and, and in this first situation, it's really for both, but there's an opportunity before you. There's a decision you need to make, and that decision would represent a significant change, and maybe some ways, earthly-wise, it would seem change for the good, yet there isn't a peace in your heart that you're to go forward with that. And I believe that check in your heart, that lack of peace, is actually from the Lord. You've been torn between not having peace, but also the fear of the implications of what happens if I pass this opportunity by. I believe the Lord wants to encourage you, don't step where the Lord isn't leading you, friend. Don't step where the Lord isn't 
leading you and watch what he will do as you trust him. I believe that applies to two people. Again, this is all in part, but I'm sharing with you. Uh, I think one of those is vocational, maybe an offer, a job change of some sorts come that has some appearance of good, but you just don't have peace with it. Just encourage you, don't step where the Lord isn't calling you. The other, I think this is a younger person, it's relational. You've got a relational decision to make. There's something you want, yet there's a check in your heart. I'm not sure this is it, but you're afraid if you don't take it, what will come after? Will you trust God? And finally, a valley of boundary lines. And this has more to do with your faith. That you're in a season where you're neither hot nor cold toward the Lord. What do I mean by that? Think about water. Think of that picture in Revelation. Hot water is good for coffee and tea, right? And cold water, if you, come, if you live where I live, cold water is good for sweet tea. But lukewarm water isn't good for either one of them. And so it is in our hearts and our walk with the Lord. Your head is saying one thing to you, the right things, but your heart and temptation and the relentless pull of the world are saying another. And I believe the Lord, the Holy Spirit, wants to waken you afresh to this as your joyful proclamation today, that as for me, the boundary lines have actually fallen in pleasant places. I didn't think so. I'm like that sheep in the fence, and I'm like on the edge of the fence, and all I do is stare out, and I just, I want to be out there. I want to know what's out there. I want to see what's out there, and everything that's in here just seems so unappealing, but that the Lord would turn your heart to turn around and look within the boundary line and recognize this is a pleasant place. As for me, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places and the fence would be something you no longer look at with a sigh, but with gratitude for the blessings and protection God has given you. So there you have it, in part. I would love to, and with anybody else who would love to, pray with you should the Lord so confirm those things. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, don't second guess it. Let God minister to you. Tab, thanks for coming to clean up. God bless you. Thank you, Aaron, very much. As Aaron said, those are subjective things, but if that pertains to you, receive God's care. Receive God's specific love for you. He knows you and he loves you. We want to, we want to end by looking to our King. What a great picture of our King in Scripture. And so with those preparing to serve us the Lord's Supper, please prepare to do so.